there are a couple of ways that we can approach relationships, right? Think about this for a minute. We can approach relationships as a job. It's a chore. I am going to love my spouse. I am going to invest in this friendship. Whether I like it or not, I'm going to do it. That sound like a fun relationship? No, I mean, imagine for a minute, what if you knew the only reason your wife or your husband or your future wife or husband was, was doing anything for you is because they felt obligated to and they really didn't care a, a lick about you? Uh, that's not a marriage. That, that's not any marriage that we'd want to be in. No, no nudging each other or hitting each other. Now compare that. Think of the word delight. Delight. What happens? This is another approach to relationships. We can be in relationship with someone because we like them, because we delight in them. Sometimes in my premarital counseling, I ask the question, what do you love about the person and what do you like about the person? Illustrating the difference between love and like. And there's something about delighting in each other that just adds color and richness and fun and beauty to a relationship, right? I was out with one of my kids a couple of weeks ago, and we were having father-child time. <laughs> you still don't know which one. And um, we just had a great day together, a great afternoon together. And I looked over, and I just said, um, you know, I really like being with you. And, and my child, <laughs> still not going to know which one. Can you imagine what happened? And I, I didn't do it with intentionality. I didn't have like a little checklist that I, I, I needed to say this to try to accomplish some goal. It just was a great day. And it's like, I like being with you. And they sort of sat up in their seat and they got this smile on their face that wouldn't go away. And, and it, just, it just was this unexpected moment of delight that I just wanted to say, I delight in you. And their response was just joy. Joy that dad would actually like being with them, and Dad would delight being with them. This morning, I want to use that sort of as, a, as an introduction to chapters 61 and 62 of Isaiah. Yep, two chapters and 45 minutes. Here we go. But so many times, we can approach our relationship with God in one of those two ways. We can come to God, and it's a chore, and it's a checklist, and I've got to do this to make sure I keep my fire insurance policy up to date, and I can go to heaven and stay out of hell. And, and that kind of relationship has no life. It has no energy because it's just a chore. It's just a duty. So many times it goes the other way. and We think of God who is distant. Or God who just is waiting to come down on us if I breathe wrong or do something wrong. And, and we see him not as uh, 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 someone that's close to us or drawing near to us, but as someone that is uninvolved and far off and has a set of rules. And hey, if we follow them, you can get in. If not, oh well. And that's not a relationship. Today, as we continue through Isaiah, and, and we've been studying through the last third of Isaiah, as, we, as we've been studying through Isaiah, we're moving to talking about the kingdom and the coming kingdom, and the new heaven and new earth, and and how do we live in light of the coming kingdom, and in light of the fact that we are already citizens of the kingdom now, we already have Jesus Christ living in us, so how do we live? And last week we looked at some beautiful descriptions of the kingdom, and no more tears, and, and sin, and the effects of sin completely undone. 
And today we're going to look at the relationships that lead us there. The work of Christ. And what did He do to lead us there? And what is His ongoing work in our hearts? And what is God going to do with His people as He leads them to the new heaven and new earth? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. And we'll look at these two chapters as they continue what we studied last week. The three chapters serve as a a unit. But in Isaiah 61, he's going to pick up and, and he's going to introduce onto the scene the Messiah that allows us to be citizens of this new kingdom. That allow us entrance into the family of God. And at the end of 60, what we were studying last week, the very last verse, he ends by saying, the least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation, talking about his promise to Israel. And then the very last sentence of chapter 60, which leads into 61, remember they didn't have the chapter divisions when it was originally um, written. He says, I am Yahweh, in its time I will hasten it. Did you catch that? I am Yahweh, in its time I will hasten it. And God said, it's coming. In its time, I will do it, I will hasten it, it will happen. But that left us with a tension. You catch the tension? If I say, in time, we're going to have a new gym floor. Now we do now. But in time, such and such will happen. That implies that there's a period of time of waiting. That there's a period of time that it hasn't happened. That's what he's going to pick up in 61. How do we live in the in-between? How do we live knowing of what's happening, what's coming, the kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, but we're still in this world that's not the new heaven and new earth? Decidedly not. And so we come to chapter 61, and we're just going to grab a couple of points. Some of the verses we'll summarize as as we move through this passage pretty quickly. But I want to spend a little more time on the first four verses of 61 because we begin to see the work of God to bring us into this kingdom We begin to see his heart and then chapter 62 is going to expand on his heart and just really blow us away with what God feels about us. When God looks beside him in the car, okay, he's not driving a car, but he says, I like being with you. I delight in you. So let's start at verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. One of the questions as we move through Isaiah, and you've heard us talk about this a lot, is we have to sort of figure out who's speaking. Because the speaker changes around, and we're dealing with prophecy and poetry at the same time, and prophecy has those mountain ranges, and sometimes we're seeing closer, sometimes we're seeing farther. In this case, these four verses, the speaker is clearly the Messiah. The anointed one, Jesus Christ, we know in hindsight, is who's speaking. And in the first point in your notes is that Jesus came to heal the damage sin has done in the lives of his children. He came to change everything. He came to turn this world upside down because sin turned it upside down. And so he's actually turning it right side up. But Jesus came to heal the damage sin has done in the lives of his children. Now, how do we know it's talking about Jesus? Just listen to that description in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And we can say, well, that could be any of us. But remember Isaiah 42.1 when we started the servant songs back a, a few months ago. We read, Behold my servant, speaking of Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
he will bring forth justice to the nations. And this phrase, while it is true, we all have the Spirit of God, this phrase in the Old Testament was used of the anointed one, of the servant, of the Messiah. It goes on to say, because Yahweh or because the Lord has anointed me, he has called me out for a specific purpose. And and there again, he has confirmed authority on me for a specific role. And so that's got to be talking about his son. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And the third thing that he says about himself, he has sent me. He has sent me. And all these point to that this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. Incidentally, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. It's where we get Messiah from. And so it all ties together. And so on this, in this picture of the new heavens and new earth comes onto stage the Messiah, the anointed one. And he says, this is what I came to do. And listen to this description when it talks about him healing the damage that sin has done. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the gospel to the poor. And we might think, well, what about those with money? The poor here isn't talking about money. The word here has to do with one that is oppressed, one that is afflicted. The natural definition is one that is bowed down. And picture one that the circumstances of life have so pressed on them that they are just bowed down and humble and don't know where to go. That's the kind of person that Jesus says he has come to give good news to. We know from from the Beatitudes that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that are bowed in spirit, afflicted in spirit, that realize the, the depth and the weight of their sin and so bow down to God Almighty because of their need for Him. I've come to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And, and He's talking to those that have been broken by sin and, and the brokenhearted where their, their circumstances have just torn at their hearts, and they don't know if they can go on. The pain and the hurt is excruciating. And we feel that in this world sometimes, right? And it says Jesus came to bind them up. The idea is to bandage. And the picture in my mind is always a little kid coming to mom and running to mom, Mom, I got a boo-boo, and maybe it's just a scratch, and maybe there's blood all down the arm. It could be either way. They're going to go to mom. And mom lovingly washes it and puts on the neosporin or whatever you put on to to hurt them. No, no, that's that's to help, isn't it? (laughs) And you bandage it up. And that's the picture here of what Jesus does for us. Whatever effects this sinful, fallen world have had on your heart, he comes and says, let me fix that. Let me take care of that. I have the right medicine Let me bandage it up. He goes on to proclaim liberty to the captives or freedom to those in the bondage of sin. And and again, the, the, the context here is the spiritual world. And what are we captive to when we are in sin and when we keep sinning and doing the same thing over and over? It grabs us and the chains and the tentacles are around us. And we're captive to it. And Jesus came to release that to release those gates and say, no, you're not captive to sin anymore. I defeated that at the resurrection and on the cross. And it's done and it is finished. And it doesn't have to have control over you. The opening of the prison to those who are bound and the same concept there. 
And so we see Jesus coming to do these things. And we might say, well, that's great. I can't wait for that to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. But this morning, I want to tell you that this part of this passage starts now. Started when Jesus was on the face of this planet. Because it goes on to say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And we're going to unpack this because there's some really interesting things here. But to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor refers back to the year of Jubilee. They would have seven years of, of seven years, 49 years. And then on the 50th year, they would have a Sabbath called the Jubilee. And those that were in prison from their debts were released. In fact, all debts were canceled, even student loans. It'd be awesome. And, and they, they were canceled. If, if you had sold family property, that family property reverted back to the family so that way families would always have their inheritance. It was the year of freedom and grace. And, and what it says here is that the Messiah, the Anointed One, came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the day of vengeance of our God. And they're both there. And it's interesting to, to sort of figure out, okay, what's he talking about? And hold your thumb in the Isaiah 61 passage. I know sometimes I just read other verses. This time I want you to go look. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. We're going to read this together because sometimes when we don't understand quite what a verse means, it's helpful to look at what Jesus says it means, right? And <laughs> what the New Testament says it means. Well, in this case, Jesus tells us what this means. In Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 16. And he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Huh, what a coincidence. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. So he found this, and he read out of Isaiah 61. That that sort of gives me chills. What we're studying in the Old Testament, Jesus opened up and read and used as an illustration. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is another reason we know this was talking about Jesus, because Jesus said it was. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and set to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all synagogue were fixed on him, because they'd often do a little homily or some description afterwards. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now the story goes on, they weren't real pleased with that answer. They considered it blasphemy. And they ended up taking him up to a hill at the top of Nazareth and trying to toss him off because they were so upset that he was claiming to be the anointed one. Well, he was. And he said, today this starts. And that's why I can confidently say, verse verse 1, this is for us today because Jesus started this. Now, we see ultimate fulfillment in the new heaven and new earth because we still have to deal with sin here. But today... God brings good news to those that are poor in spirit, that are brokenhearted, that are in captivity to sin. All of the ways that sin has impacted your life and pressed in on you and and made life just, just hell on earth. All of those ways Jesus came to undo. And he does it now. 
It's interesting, just a, a couple of technical notes. If you notice, where did, where did Jesus stop? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, what did he not say? The day of vengeance. Good. Notice those things. As you study scripture, notice those details. And, and most commentators, and I, I agree with them, think that that was very intentional, that Jesus stopped there because he instituted the, day, the year of the Lord's favor, but that the day of vengeance was still coming. And so if we think about it in timelines, some of you love your timelines, which I do too, so you can geek out with me. If you think of the timelines, the, the year of the Lord's favor started with Christ and his arrival on earth. And then that continues until the day of vengeance which is going to happen with the second coming of Christ. When he comes to, to destroy evil and punish evil and take care of evil on this earth, that's coming and will culminate at the great white throne judgment when evil is completely destroyed, followed by the new heaven and new earth. And so Jesus here is giving us help to understand what these verses are talking about. The day, the year of the Lord's favor, and again, it's not the day of the Lord's favor, but a year, a prolonged period we're living in right now, but we know that the day of the vengeance of God is coming. He goes on to say some, some very similar things. He comes to comfort all those who mourn. To comfort all those who mourn to know their hearts, to understand their hearts, to bring healing to their hearts. He goes on to say, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. So he's replacing the effects of sin with with the glory that he brings, the beauty that he brings, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit or a weak spirit, one that is... It's a word used for a flame that is dimly burning and about to burn out. And sometimes our spirits feel that way. But God says, I'm bringing you praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. Trees that stand for who God is and what he's done. The planting of Yahweh that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. We know most of that in verse 4 is fulfilled in the future with the new heavens and new earth. It still hasn't been fulfilled. But in this year of the Lord's favor, He is working in our hearts even in a sinful, fallen world. Now, Now, I know. I know when I read this, sometimes my heart says, I don't see it. How is Jesus helping me now? How, when I've lost my job and I don't know where the next paycheck is, how does Jesus help me with that? I haven't seen a check in my mailbox this week. When we have a dying relative and, 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 and there's no healing and Jesus chooses not to heal, how is he helping me with that? Let, let's be honest. We don't always see this, right? And so we have to have our head overrule our hearts to say, We know that God is working beyond ourselves because all of that is looking at our little speck on the timeline saying, I know what's best. And God is looking at all of history and saying, I know what's best. And all things will work for my glory. When I think of how Jesus helps, I think of, of really reorienting my mind and focusing on Jesus instead of my trouble. 
with four questions, four, four different things. I, I put words there to, to understand. The first is, when I'm in the middle of it, when I'm in the middle of being brokenhearted and the, the weight of sin crushing in, I need to remember Jesus saved me. And this can sound like a Sunday school answer. You know, who did such and such? Jesus. No, no, Jesus saved you from the mire of sin, from, from, from rebellion, from everything in our hearts turned against God and the, facing the punishment that that brings, Jesus intervened and on the cross offers salvation. That's exciting, guys. That is something that should change our outlook of life. Because no matter what I'm going through now, Jesus saved me. Jesus saved me. So we've got to look at that. And that, that's all through Isaiah. Second thing we talked about at Easter, think and reorient our minds. How does Jesus help? The fact that he's risen from the dead means he's with us. Remember his presence. Remember that no matter what you're facing this week and no matter how your heart is hurting, Jesus is in the middle of it with you. And he's saying, Let, we can do this. My strength, you follow. We can do this. Spurgeon and I want to read a, read a section from Spurgeon who can word things so much better than I. If Christ appeared to his servants in the olden time and manifested himself to them as bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh in all their trials and all their troubles, he will do no less to you today. He will be with you in passing through the fire. He will be your rock, your shield, and your high tower. He will be your song, your banner, your crown of rejoicing. Fear not. He who visited his saints of old will surely not be long absent from his children today. His delights are still with his people. And still will he walk with us through this weary wilderness. I love that last phrase. His delights are still with his people. Remember salvation. Remember his presence. Third thing, remember he's changing us. And he's changing us now. Sanctification. He's he's by degree by degree making us righteous. Now, we will fully see that in heaven, but now he's doing that. And so here's the deal. In our trouble, in our trials, that means my response should be different now than it was two years ago. If If I asked for volunteers and took a brand new Christian and someone that's been saved for 40 years and I take a hammer and smash their thumbs, I would expect their reactions to be different. Right? A new believer probably sells all the language from this world and everything. But someone that's been saved 40 years, now I'm not going to smash your thumb. Some of you are like, would you do that? um, But if you're going through it, the process of maturing and and Jesus walking through things with us allows someone that's 70 years old that's been walking with Christ for 50 years to say, God's got this. What are you worried about? I can trust him because I've seen him work these 200 times in my life. God is changing us. How does Jesus help? Salvation, presence. He's changing us. And we know there's a bright future where the junk of sin is completely taken care of. That's the context of this passage. We know the future. We need to redirect our thoughts on the work of Jesus as we struggle. He is the one that makes something out of nothing. He is the one that makes of us what we can't make of ourselves. That's what he came to do. To be with us through the deepest, darkest times as we deal with the junk of sin in this world.
and eventually we'll be in perfect communion with him and the sin will be gone. That's the first four verses. And I, I, don't worry, I, I wanted to spend a lot more time there. The next verses, five through nine, and in your notes, point number two, in the end, Israel will shine for God and have a place of glory rather than shame. And we've talked about this a number of times in Isaiah. I just want to summarize these verses. It starts by saying, strangers shall t- stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of Yahweh. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion, often used of the inheritance of the firstborn. There will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will receive their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And we see here a description, and this is looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. When Israel is restored, when sin has been taken care of, and then people from all other nations will be coming to Zion like we talked about last week. And they will see the honor that Israel has in God's heart, that he delights in them as he delights in his children. Just a side note, this is a good reminder that as we look at history, as we look at now and in the future, that God has a special place in his heart for Israel. He hasn't lost that place. And they are still going to bless the nations. They did that through Jesus, and they will do that in all eternity. So in the end, Israel will shine for God and have a place of glory rather than shame. But I want to jump ahead to verse 10. Our response to this great salvation should be great praise. Our response to this great salvation is to be great praise. Read verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will delight in Him. I will be happy in Him. I will, I will praise Him. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels... Just stop there. Enjoy that verse. The speaker here is probably Isaiah speaking on behalf of all believers. Isaiah speaking on behalf of all believers. And on number two, I think I skipped that. The the speaker was God. But here God, or Isaiah speaking for all of us, say rejoice. Praise God. He's given us salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. And, And that's beautiful imagery that we've talked about. We're not righteous on our own. We, 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 we're sinners, but that robe of righteousness is, is the righteousness from Jesus Christ that is given to us as a free gift. And then he uses marriage imagery that we, we see in the New Testament. We'll see in the next chapter. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, this is what God makes of you and me. This is what he does with our lives. Our sinful, broken hearts and our lives, he clothes us with righteousness. He makes us beautiful. Not because we are, but because he is. Oh, what do we clothe ourselves in? 
This is what he clothes us in. What do we go out each week and settle for? Let's close our, clothe ourselves with the righteousness and the beauty that comes from knowing God. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. This is his work and it will result in worship. Please, village, please don't ever get tired about singing of God's salvation on Sunday morning. For one, you're going to be doing it for all eternity. So don't get tired now. There's a lot more. But when we understand what God has done, we can't help but worship. We can't help but praise. It'll sprout up before all the nations. As people come that maybe don't know God, your worship will tell them where your heart is. If we get excited about salvation, they'll say, what is this thing? What is God doing here? If we can struggle to worship when we sing about God's salvation, we're also communicating a message, a very different message. I want to jump to 62. And we'll look at the first part of this, this chapter as we end. You can read the rest of it on your own. But point number four there, God delights in his people and shows it by saving and drawing them close. Catch this. God delights in his people. Don't put in that blank tolerates. Don't put in that, uh, that blank that he puts up with. God delights in his people and shows it by saving and drawing them close. This is such a beautiful passage of God's heart towards us that changes everything, just like when I talk to, to my child. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And the, the, the speaker here is God, at least through verses 1 through 6. For Zion's sake, for my people's sake, I will not keep silent. And silent there applies more to actions, actually. I, I won't stand back and do nothing. I will be involved. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. He says, I'm involved for their sake because my heart is with them. I'm going to make them righteous and we're going to build that. I'm going to save them. The nations shall see your righteousness and all of the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of Yahweh will give and a new identity, a new person. We are new creations in Christ. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. Think about that for a minute. Those of you with daughters, when you go to them and say, man, you look nice today, you're beautiful dads, that does something in their hearts. God's coming us to us and saying, you shall be a crown of beauty in my hand. A royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. There's there's so much imagery here, but it is so beautiful. God says to his people, I'm giving you a a new name, and one one of those new names is I delight in you. What if we lived like that was our name? 
What if we went through every moment and said, God delights in me? Catch this. The God who created everything we know and see with a word out of his mouth, with his breath, who holds it all together in the palm of his hand, who knows all things, who, who, who is all powerful, he delights in you. He likes you. That is life-changing when we really understand it. That sets apart Christianity from almost every false religion. God loves us, but he delights in us. And there's a difference. This isn't just sterile salvation. This is going from lonely desolation to a, a beautiful, joyful marriage relationship. Marriage also implies that God protects and provides and cherishes. And that's what he does for his people. Verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Speaking of being dedicated to the land. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I've shared this before. You know what my favorite part of a wedding is? Standing up here with the groom when the bride comes in. And I don't look at the bride. You guys all look at the bride. That's fine. You take care of that for me. I look at the groom and I don't care how strong and, and how stoic they are. Usually, tear comes down his eyes when he sees his bride in that dress for the first time. It is a beautiful thing to see the, the groom's response. Let me read five again. The last part. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now we could look at this and say, yeah, this is just emotional lovey-dovey language. Never had a groom say that to me. This is language of relationship with Jesus Christ, with God Almighty. And not a one-way relationship, but a two-way relationship that he says, you are my delight. I rejoice in you. Oh, the joy that God has in us. Yes, he hates sin. And sin is not joyful. But when his children walk with him as we will for all eternity, that is a delight. And, and, and I wanted to end here today to realize that we are not just following a set of rules. If that's what Christianity is to you, come talk to me because that's not Christianity. That's not what God's heart is. He wants us to delight in Him as He delights in us. He's setting a tone. Delight in me. And if we have a response today, delight in God. Rest in the fact that He delights in you but respond, reciprocate that, and delight in Him. Pastor Andrew talked about that in 58 and 59, that it's a right delight that should motivate all of our actions. Just as I close, I want to read a couple of quotes. There must be delight on our parts. This is from Stephen Charnock, a Puritan pastor. There must be delight on our parts. Joy is the tuning of the soul. The command to rejoice precedes the command to pray. Speaking of 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Delight makes the melody. Prayer without it will be but a harsh sound. 
And so he's talking about delight in God. If you notice the next verse, 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. And we're like, well, what is that talking about? And then he goes on. You who put Yahweh in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise to the earth. And NIV does a great job of describing that. But the idea is those that are set to put Yahweh in remembrance, those that are in prayer, that are interceding on behalf of Jerusalem and others and and broken hearts. And he says, don't stop praying. Take no rest. Put Yahweh in remembrance. Don't stop. And it says, and give God no rest until he answers your prayer. And it's talking about the persistence of prayer. And, and, and if, if that is done without relationship, it's manipulative. But when we start to understand that God wants to hear from us, he asks to hear from us and us to come in relationship with him, this is beautiful. The delighting precedes the actions. It's the source. Are we a people that delight in God? The answer isn't just to spur up more delight, but to realize he delights in you. When I delight in my wife, it is much easier for her to delight in me. If I despise my wife, I'm probably not getting delight. God delights in us. It's much easier for us to delight in him. If we have the lie in our head that God is distant and far off and could care less what we do, or couldn't care less, then we'll struggle to delight in him. Today, Isaiah 61 and 62, uh, elders, if you want to come up, it's about remembering what Christ has done. Remembering the trajectory he has us on, the gift that is coming, and remembering that he delights in us. When Jesus came and he hung on that cross, and he gave his body represented by the bread and his blood was spilled represented by the juice for forgiveness of our sins, he did that willingly because he loves you and delights in you. That changes everything. And some of you are are in tune with thinking of relationships as delighting and, and some of these aspects of the heart. And this makes total sense. Some of us have grown up where Christianity is just about a set of rules and legalism. And if I do this, God's happy. If I don't, wham. And we've got to break through that lie from Satan and realize this is about God loving us and delighting in us and bringing his children into his family. Now, does he judge sin? Absolutely. Does he hate sin? Completely. He is holy and righteous. But his delight and love is why he gave us a way and gave us a solution. That's what we are remembering at the communion table. We're recommitting ourselves to God, remembering his delight. And today, I ask you to make it a commitment to delight in him, to enjoy God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your work on the cross. That you came to bind the brokenhearted, to release the captives from sin, to destroy sin. That if we will return and respond to your delight, Lord, we will be your children and we will have a bright future. 
Lord, may we love you and follow you as they go hand in hand. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to end by reading the last verse of Isaiah 62. Who are we? And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. We are called, we are redeemed, we are delighted in. Let's go be that people this week.